0: Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. In August of 2022, nine student groups at the Berkeley Law School, since that time those nine student groups has grown to 14, decided to issue bylaws not to invite or host speakers that have expressed and continue to hold views in support of Zionism or Israel. Two attorneys, Gabe Groisman and Arson Ostrovsky, have filed a civil rights claim against Berkeley Law asking that the U.S. Department of Education investigate whether the school is discriminating against Jews. This is a fascinating and such an important conversation. We talk about Zionism, anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism. Take a listen, folks. I think you'll find it really, really important, and please share it. Again, I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.
1: Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com.
0: So pleased to have with me today two very special guests. Gabe Groisman, attorney, former mayor of Bell Harbor, spearheaded the first municipal BDS Ordinance does so much for the Jewish world and for pro-Israel causes, as does my other guests, Arsen Ostrovsky, CEO of International Legal Forum, Wages Battles Against Terrorism, BDS, and other anti-Semitism. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining
2: me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: So you're both heavily involved in Jewish and Israeli-related causes, as well as I'm sure many other things. Uh, One of your specific things that you focus on is fighting anti-Semitism, anti-Israel bias. And what I want to focus on today on this particular episode is the fight you're currently having where you filed a civil rights lawsuit against Berkeley Law. We're all lawyers here on this thing, although many of my listeners are not. And you're asking that the U.S. Department of Education investigate whether the school is discriminating against Jews. Not a lot of people are actually following this. Not enough people are following this, I should say. So let's get into it. What happened at Berkeley?
3: Um, <laughs> I see. Gay pointing at me. Um, it's uh, you know you, you touched on something very important. I'll say uh, well, in a moment when you said that this is about discrimination of Jews, um, which it is. It's something that in, in this case has been was hidden behind or masqueraded behind a facade of uh, discrimination against the Zionists, as if that is somehow any different or any more excusable, which it is not. Um, what happened here was that in late August. Um, A number of uh, student organizations from the UC Berkeley Law School, nine at the time, uh, passed a resolution uh, quite simply saying that they will not um, uh, invite uh, any uh, Zionist speakers or any speakers who uh, quote-unquote support the occupation of Palestine. There was nine groups at the time in uh, in late August. Since then, another five groups have uh, jumped on board. So you have 14 in total. Um. Now, what transpired after that is something which is, uh, um, you know, quite, uh, quite unique in, in, in many ways. You had the dean of the Berkeley Law School, who's Jewish himself, say that under this uh, formula that he too would be uh, precluded from speaking um, to these groups. However, he then added that, but only a handful of student groups have, uh, have endorsed this, um, when in reality it wasn't just a handful, it was nine groups. Out of 100 who are the most, some of the largest groups um, in the in the Berkeley Law School, but the bigger issue here being that no one would ever say that only a handful of groups uh, decided to um, prohibit speakers for African American, LGBT, women, Asian Americans, and so on. Um, but what it gets down to, really, the core of it is that the way this whole debate has been framed, it's been framed by the dean and others as a as a First Amendment free speech debate, whereas what we are saying that that is an incorrect interpretation. In fact, that is willfully misleading, and that this is in fact an act. This is in fact um, an act of grievous discrimination because Zionism, which is what this case is all about, goes down to you know the the root of our identity as Jews. It's something that is integral, indispensable, and, uh, and a core element of our identity. So when they say no Zionist, what they really mean is no Jews, which goes back to what you said in your introduction.
0: My understanding is that the pledge itself was authored by Students for Justice in Palestine. Uh, it's a pernicious group. It appears throughout the country here. I don't know if it appears elsewhere around the world. Tell us about SJP, their activity. I think not enough people understand who they are and just how anti-Israel, anti-Semitic they are.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in on this one. And first, first to just uh, to dovetail on what Arson was saying earlier you know what's what's important about about this resolution people are saying are these bylaws uh, excluding zionist speakers it's not even speakers on zionism it's if you hold a belief held by over 90% of jews which is a core component of the Jewish identity, you can't participate, you can't speak to our group, not about scheduling, not about constitutional law, not about cooking, you can't speak about anything. And that's an exclusion of a group uh, which is discriminatory under the law, which we can get into. SJP, Students for Justice in Palestine, is, uh, is a group that's very, very active on college campuses throughout the United States, which lead many uh, or most of the of the efforts around campus that lead to the isolation and discrimination um, and anti-Sem- anti-Semitic acts against Jews and make Jewish lives miserable throughout uh, college campuses. And I know if anyone from SJP heard me explaining that, they'd be happy with that explanation because that's a, it actually, it was, that's the goal of all of their efforts. Um, there's a lot uh, written about uh, who's who's funding them? Who's behind them? But really, what's more important is the students that are involved in them. And you see students of all of all kinds jumping into this "quote unquote" just cause, which it's not. Um, but it's not just the members of SJP that are that are making a splash. When you look at college campuses uh, today they're wrought with this concept of in- intersectionality where you try to find groups uh, that are allies, quote-unquote allies with your cause, and, and you wherever your interests intersect, you go out and fight each other's fight. So SJP, just like in this one, You know, we'll go out and find different groups on totally different issues and get them to adopt similar bylaws and resolutions that are discriminatory. The effect that it has, and I was speaking to a student from Berkeley last week um, about this, and this is all over the country, and it's important to understand, is that in many college campuses in the United States today, if you want to join a group on an issue totally unrelated to religion, totally unrelated to the Middle East, it could be a women's rights group, it could be an immigration group, Many of those groups have, within their own bylaws, anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, anti-Jewish um, bylaws and regulations, where at, Jewish kids are being asked to check their identity at the door if they want to participate. And it's really causing a big disruption and a, a, a lot of difficulty for Jewish students around the country.
0: So,
3: Jason, I would, just, I would just add one thing about uh, SJP. Their, actual, their, logo, uh, no, sorry, their motto actually says, from the river to the sea. Palestine will be free. Um, this group, they they, they don't hide. They're um, they, they, uh, they are very transparent. They don't care about two-state solution. Uh, they don't care about these borders or their borders. Their goal quite explicitly is to see the dismantlement of the state of Israel.
0: Right. So what's ironic is I also, like you, would not be able to speak here, or like the dean, I suppose, would not be able to speak here, join any of their clubs if I were at the university. But when I'm in the Middle East, throughout the Arab countries, and even when I speak to Palestinians, they don't hold the ones that I speak to, and and even the ones that are thoroughly against the policies of the Trump administration and most of the things that I believe in, don't subscribe to these theories, meaning they may be as pro-Palestinian as one can get. They may be extraordinarily interested in what some call a two-state solution, which I think is a label that shouldn't be used. You know All the arguments that they have about East Jerusalem and all that but very few of them actually subscribe to this theory. Now, that's anecdotal. It's not, I didn't take a, a full poll. How did SJP become so successful at doing what they're doing? And you're fighting one battle, but it seems to me there's a cascade of battles that ought to be fought around the country.
2: Yeah. So, two things, Jason. First of all, um, with regards to the, the, the second question, you know, the, uh, in the United States and academia and the media, everything has been become binary, right? Everything has been dumbed down to its lowest common denominator. It's good versus evil, white versus black. You see it, you see it um applied to many different spaces in, in social circles and in academic circles. And really uh the narrative of the Palestinians um has, has resonated with different liberal groups around the country and they just, it's a simplification oversimplification and full of misinformation and disinformation. Um, they're just full falsehoods. Right. And, And what the narrative is, but it fits perfectly into, what is a popular narrative in so many circles around the country? So it's resonated, they've become, they become the tide has totally shifted. The Jewish community and Israel is always on the wrong side of that equation in the culture wars. And that's really where, where they've found a lot of success. And to your first, to your first point, or your first, yeah, it's a point. Your first point on the disconnect between what people in the West, in the United States, and in Europe um, tried to say about the Middle East and Israel and the Palestinians and the Arabs. It's them projecting most of the time with the way they look at the conflict and the issues that they see. And you see it all the time where the, most of the time what's missing and who's missing for many of these initiatives are Palestinians themselves. You just have liberal, uh, liberal um, activists in the United States jumping on the bandwagon on these issues. And if you scratch at the surface, if you get one of them on the phone or pull one of them aside and ask them just two or three questions about Israel and the Palestinian conflict, they don't know. They crumble They crumble after the first question because they've just taken on this initiative as the right versus wrong, and they think they're taking on the right side of it with no information. That's a really
0: important point, and it's been my experience as well. There are certain ones who are well-trained with certain arguments, most of them false, I believe, or distorted. Um, but really, it's a handful of them. And when you engage with them in any kind of meaningful dialogue, they do crumble, as you say. And uh, it's quite remarkable that they even in places like Berkeley Law, where one would think there's a couple of smart kids, at least, right, where uh, they, they're able to get away <laughs> with this.
3: Let's you know, t- you, you can have a sorry, I was no, reasonable debate and discussion with opposing uh, minds and people who say disagree on this Israeli policy, or that Israeli policy you know very well during your time as well. Uh, but there is no debate happening here. I mean, these, um, their position is point blank that Israel should not, Exist. Um, there is nothing to debate with them. For, for them, if you even believe in Israel's mere right to exist, you're persona non grata. You're banned, you're prohibited, you're canceled, you're excluded. There is no debate to be held with these people, which is really quite, quite unfortunate.
0: So let's get into the legal theory of your case. Let's assume for all, you know, my audience are not lawyers, they're not judges. Explain to the general population what the case is all about.
3: So because uh, UC Berkeley is a public institution, because they receive the funds from the federal government, from the Department of Education, that means they fall under the purview of the Civil Rights Act. The Civil Rights Act is very clear. It states that anyone, any institution that does receive such funding from the federal government shall not prohibit on the basis of race, sex or national identity. And what we are saying is that because Zionism is something that is so integral and indispensable to Jewish identity, therefore um, Zionists, and mostly obviously Jews, therefore being discriminated under these proposed Bibles. Um, Furthermore, uh, the university administrators have an obligation to take active steps in order to root out, respond, condemn, and take action against these uh, discriminatory acts. And we are saying also here that on the contrary, not only is the university not taking these steps, but they actually aiding and abetting. Specifically when you have, for example, the dean saying that only a handful of student groups are adopting such bylaws, which in effect is justifying mainstreaming and excusing such such justification um, for um, uh, discrimination against these students.
0: So there's only a few haters and that that justifies it, I guess, is his position. Is that oh, a little position?
3: His position no, that 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 is not. And you know, we've certainly said, you know, irrespective of uh, how many groups, uh, an act of discrimination has occurred, it's exactly the same as if you know, if you're a, a workplace of employment and you're saying and you're advertising for jobs and you're saying, well, we will not employ African Americans or we will not employ LGBT people. It's exactly uh, the same circumstances here.
2: Yeah, and, and I'll jump in. What's interesting is the dean is, is a, a legend in constitutional law. If you studied law in the last 20 years in the United States, you studied uh, Professor uh constitutional law book. He was the main author of that. And, and I'm confident that he knows that the arguments that he's putting forward are... are are fallacious. They're not proper arguments where he says, well, it's just a First Amendment issue. And this has been litigated since the 60s, where those arguments were made, where he said, well, I wanted to, I didn't want to allow, you know, Black people to eat in this restaurant. It's a First Amendment issue. Okay. There, There are limits to the First Amendment, and the Civil Rights Act sets forth many of them, not all of them, but many of them. And that's exactly what's happening here. And what they've done, which is interesting from a legal perspective, rather than saying blatantly, Jews aren't allowed to speak at our groups. They said people that are Zionists or hold Zionist beliefs are not allowed to speak at our groups. And that's a core component of the Jewish identity. So the argument that we make in our our brief, which isn't a perfect argument, but it helps illustrate what the position they're taking is, which is if you were to say that anyone who believes that Jesus is the son of God cannot speak at uh, our—participate or speak in our groups— that would be discriminatory and wrong. It would be discriminatory against Christians because that's a core belief of Christianity. Even if there are some non-believers within Christianity, so that's essentially what they're doing. The First Amendment has nothing to do with this at all. This is a question about discrimination. The dean knows it. I'm sure he knows it, and he's in a position of being at an academic institution on the west coast of the United States. It's not a. I'm sure it's not an easy position to be in. Yep, that-
3: Jason. Uh, can I just start? Can I just add two very, very quick things? Uh, one is that. We are not suggesting here that the university or these groups ought to be inviting pro-Israel speakers because that would be a violation of First Amendment. What we are saying is that what we are seeing here is a wholesale exclusion of a group of people, i.e. Jews, on the basis of our um, ethnic identity. Um, The other important point uh, with respect to the legalities of it, um, in the previous administration, of course, under which uh, you served, um, the president made an executive order uh, which, amongst other things, said that the, the White House administration will vigorously pursue uh, anti-Semitism against the Jews, including on campus. And there was an important reference in that effective order uh, that in determining whether anti-Semitism has occurred, that a reference will be made with respect to the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism. Now, this definition is very important. It's been adopted by some 30-plus countries around the world Um The U.S. uses it as a tool as well, hundreds of civil institutions. And this definition very clearly says what is and isn't anti-Semitism. But with reference to Israel, it does say that the denial of Jewish people's rights of determination, which is Zionism, is an act of uh, anti-Semitism. So that is something that is important Mm here in terms of uh, a guiding tool, in terms of also uh, determining why anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism.
0: Is that executive order still in effect as the Biden administration uh, terminated that, they still honor it, and maybe don't enforce it, but they hasn't been ripped up, right?
3: It is. It is in effect. Um, it is still in effect. And what is interesting uh, with this particular uh, case of ours is not only is it the first time, the my understanding, that the case of really what is Zionism is featured so prominently, but what we've actually seen is the Biden administration um, the first time they've sort of exercised um, the Title Six investigation with respect to what might be deemed you know left-wing anti-semitism attacks on zionism there's been other investigations open but you know where it's been very clearly things like harassment against jews um you know making really some outrageous statements and so forth but this is a really i think the first time it's been employed with respect to what might be deemed left-wing or progressive zionism
2: And to clarify your opening, Jason, the last week, the Biden administration, the Department of Education announced that they were opening a formal investigation as a result of the complaint that Arson and I filed. You know, and that's really, really a landmark moment. Um, Obviously, we're all waiting for what the results of that investigation are. But the fact that they even accepted it. You know, based on the argument that we that we put forward, I think it's the first time it's really been put forward in, in the federal government in this form, at least in a complaint, um, is is important. It's telling, and we have to acknowledge that we're that we've taken a ni- an important step forward, and we hope to take many more to be able to quash this. But it, it really was a momentous occasion last week when they when they announced that.
0: Yeah, good for them. I, I applaud that, and thank you for starting the uh, this this process. So hopefully, there'll be many more of these. You know, we danced around this a little bit, but for the purposes of my listeners, because people sometimes don't feel confident in how they answer this question, um, could you define Zionism as you see it, and why anti-Zionism is really a modern-day form of anti-Semitism?
2: sure I'll, I'll, I'll take i'll take it if you want if you want so zionism it's very important by the way it's the most important question whenever someone says they're an anti-zionist it's at first you have to define what zionism is then we could define what you're against right zionism is simply the belief that jews have the right to self-determination on their ancestral homeland in the land of israel That's what Zionism is. Zionism did not start in 1897 or 1894 with Theodore Herzl. It started uh, in the Bible itself, in the five books of Moses. Uh, There's there's discussions in Deuteronomy specifically in the fifth book of how we'll be dispersed, the Jewish people, uh, which began in the land of Israel and Judea. We're called Jews because we come from Judea, which is one of the regions in the land of Israel. And we would be dispersed amongst the nations and then, uh, God would bring us back into the ingathering of the exiles to uh, to the land of Israel. Um, when we were dispersed from the state of Israel, there was, or the land of Israel, there was always a uh, continuous Jewish presence there, but when we were dispersed mostly from Jerusalem by outside invaders, um, we as became an integral part of the Jewish identity, was the yearning to go back to the land of Israel. To reestablish sovereignty there, like we did under Had, under King David and King Solomon, that is what Zionism is. We pray towards Jerusalem three times a day. We pray to Zion, which is another word for Israel, uh, many times a day, and you know many times within our three prayers of, of a, uh, a day. And today, what's happening is when there's groups that are trying to be anti-Zionist, saying we're 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 not against the Jews, we're just against the Jewish uh, belief that they have a right to self-determine in the land of Israel. Well, you you can't do that. You can't say you're not against me, but you're against my left arm. Right? That's part and parcel of what it means to be Jewish. You could be against certain policies of the state of Israel. There's no one more critical of the policies of the state of Israel than uh, Jews that live in Israel. Um, but that when you're when you're challenging or questioning the Jewish right to self-determination on the land of Israel, which is Zionism, you know that that is an attack on a big part of the Jewish identity.
0: Yeah, sometimes we Americans are more critical of uh, the, the the Israeli government, as we see now all these hateful arguments in the New York Times, the Washington Post, even the Biden administration are making comments about how they're not going to speak to some people within the Israeli government, or they're going to hold Bibi Netanyahu accountable for them. Uh, I don't know who's the bigger critic.
3: It's uh, it's interesting, right, uh, jo- uh, Jason? You know, you, you mentioned, that, of course, you know, just the other day, President Biden, of course, announced bigger. I think at the Hanukkah reception was a bigger uh, plan to combat anti-Semitism. And then I actually saw literally just an hour ago him posing for photographs with uh, Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib uh, for, you know, Christmas photographs. And, you know, the interesting there specifically with respect to Tlaib, uh, specifically here is, you know, only a few weeks ago or a month ago, she actually said that uh, you cannot be Zionist and progressive. And it's important here because what really they are trying to do here is they are trying to exclude Jews. Um, they might try, they might be trying to masquerading it or hiding it as the Zionists, but but we know uh, and we to call them out because when I say no Zionists, we know very well that they mean no Jews.
0: So related to that, let's talk about BDS. When I was at the White House, <laughs> believe it or not, most of my tweets, probably all of my tweets, were reviewed by the National Security Council, the State Department. I was able to say what I wanted to say, but they always reviewed them and gave comments. Um, Most of them were okay. Occasionally I fought with them, and most of the time I was allowed to do what I needed to do anyway. But I remember a particular instance of BDS where I called BDS anti-Semitic. Somebody was all in a huff about it, and in the end, President Trump agreed with it. In fact, he had said that same thing even before he became president, so I was able to issue the tweet. Explain, if you you don't mind, to my listeners why BDS is anti-Semitic.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll go first, and and there's lots of ways to answer this. So, you know, we passed, I wrote and passed the nation's first anti-BDS ordinance in 2015. The BDS movement has been going on since 2006 or so. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of academic discussions. I studied philosophy. We can sit here and have lots of arguments why philosophically, theoretically, it is or isn't anti-Semitic. And, and, and we can do that. It's actually a lot of fun. But in practice, every single time there's the BDS movement is out and about doing their activities, you'll see it clear as day that it's just pure anti-Semitism. You have students um, at Jewish unions with uh, being attacked and harassed uh, by the BDS movement People saying that they're not going to buy anything from from Jewish groups or from anyone who does business in Israel or who goes to Israel or who does anything related to Israel. Again, just attacking Jews and as a euphemism towards Jews. Um, and it's it, it, in practice, every single time the BDS movement uh, rears its head, it, it's pure and simple anti-Semitism. Now, the movement itself, the boycott of the state of Israel, really, if you look at the IRA definition, the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, and it addresses it, you know, when when anti-Israel activities like B- like the BDS movement cross the line into anti-Semitism, it's three times. It's the three Ds. It's first, if you're looking to delegitimize the state of Israel, it doesn't have the right to exist. When you de- Second D is you demonize the state of Israel where they're the cause and the root of all evil you find in the world. And third is when you apply double standards to the state of Israel that you don't apply to anyone else. And really a lot of that, uh, when we're talking about now the details of the BDS movement, it's really in the third realm. It's a double standard that's applied towards Israel. It's not applied to anywhere else in the world. We saw it with Airbnb, we saw it with Ben and Jerry's, both of whom tried to or temporarily did boycott the state of Israel or parts of the state of Israel um, uh, under the guise of some sort of uh, human rights, BDS activity. Uh, luckily, the levers that were put into place by many folks Around this uh, this this chat and and around uh, around the country, you know the pressure was able to uh, be applied there, and they were able to back off. But but um, you know at the end of the day, when you see BDS in action, it's anti-Semitic every time.
3: Jason, I would just I would just add that you know you only need to listen to the founders of the BDS movement, to people like Omar Bagudi, who are very clear uh, in terms of their goals. Uh, they, they, they don't care about. It. <laughs> They don't care about a two-state solution of, of any kind. It is very, very specific that their ultimate goal is a one-state solution, a return of Palestinian refugees, and the end of Israel's existence as a Jewish state. Um, so they, they, they don't care about which which side of the borders you were talking about. That is the ultimate goal of the BDS movement as a whole. So those that are engaging in this movement, those that are supporting it in any way, um, they are ultimately aiding and abetting um, this, uh, this plan.
0: In November of this year, Congressman Josh Gottheimer, a Democrat from my home state of New Jersey, sent a letter to the Secretary of Education urging him to investigate this. How important is that action and are there other political figures doing this? And if not, how do we get other political figures to do this if that's an important step?
2: It's a hugely important step. And Josh Gottheimer is a great example. He was a Democratic congressman who's really taken uh, taking on his own party on the issue of anti-Semitism in Israel and boycotting and the BDS movement, another one is Richie Torres. You know, there's there's a group within the Democratic Party of young congressmen that are not buying into this woke agenda that includes includes in it an, a, a, a rabid anti-Israel policy, and it's it's very important not just in substance of of the specific issue you were talking about, but just. A, a, as a whole, in general, for there to be real pushback within the Democratic Party uh, from the rising stars especially is tremendously important.
0: What's next in the case? Like, where are they, have they answered yet, the defense, or where, where are we at?
2: Um,
3: so, I mean, they as of a week ago, the Office of Civil Rights announced that they will be launching a formal investigation in response to our claim. And now it's essentially, I suppose, an evidentiary gathering exercise. Um, we, um, you know, they they will need to speak to students to campus administrators and so on to determine exactly what is happening on, on the ground um and you know it's you know if you re- re- read our claim and it's an important way to refer to uh, members of congress like uh, like josh like richard torres like kevin mccarthy by the way as well um so it's something that's you know bi- bipartisan in this particular case also students uh jewish groups uh, faculty members as well who have really um spoken out against this um so we're, it's it's a process that will take it will take some time but i think we're confident that the facts here really do speak for themselves and uh we will uh, get to the bottom of it
0: a lot of parents are concerned these are israel supporting parents jewish uh, christian doesn't matter are concerned about college campuses these days but many of them just don't know what's really going on how bad would you say it is for Jews and Israel supporters on college campuses
2: and universities. I guess it's worse. It's worse than you could imagine. Obviously, it depends on on uh, each college, college. Campuses is slightly different, but every conversation that I've had with college students or parents of college students uh, every time is eye-opening. Whether it's in California at the UCs, which are particularly bad, or even on the East Coast, um, where at a at, at a prestigious university outside of Boston, the uh, Hillel director you know said, you know, we don't we don't really talk about pro-Israel here because it's it's a little bit uh, controversial. Um, so really, the students are put in this terrible position where they're basically implicitly being asked. To hide their Jewish identity in the four most important years, arguably, in their formative lives, where they're really start, starting to step out of their of their shell from their parents' home and, and step out into the world. And students are being asked unfairly today, but, you know, the world isn't fair, but they're being asked unfairly to stand up and say, okay, now 18 years old is my time to fight for my identity, for my people, um, and to deal with... Rabbit anti-Semitism, you know, the, if you ask any students if the BDS movement is anti-Semitic, they'll tell you because when they walk through the quad on their college campus, you know, nine times out of 10, nobody's asking them their position on, on Israel or on the Palestinian conflict. They just see a Jewish student and they're going to attack them. So it's really, a, it's a serious issue. Uh, it's a serious issue in the application process. If, if you speak to any high school seniors, Parents, you know, the big question at Jewish day schools today is how much do you include about your Jewish identity in your application? You know, these are serious questions that we we've not seen before, at least not in uh, the 42 years that I've been around.
0: So the quota system is gone, but we're facing an even more difficult and hateful um, system, I suppose. A- and I say in all of my talks that we're not, we haven't prepared our kids well for college campuses. But I guess part of the issue is, from what I'm hearing from you, it's just. This came out of nowhere. It's not exactly happening only in 2022. It's been going on a while. But I think we weren't prepared because we didn't expect this. What can we do to help these kids?
3: <clears throat> um, I and mean, well, certainly I think one step that we're taking now with respect to uh, filing this claim against uh, Berkeley is important because I think what we're, sh- what we're showing to them is that we will not stand idly by as they're being discriminated against, harassed, and excluded. So I think first they need to know that we have their backing and by we i mean not, not only us not only lawyers but the broader jewish community as well it's important that they know that they have their backing um, that they have their support when instances like this do arise but they have someone to turn to um number one and number two i think it's necessary also to provide them uh, with a stronger perhaps base of education education about um, jewish history jewish rights zionism what is designism um, i'm not sure if that is necessarily being fully uh, studied or learned in the preceding years before they hit campus because once they hit campus, once they hit that you know, that first week, the orientation week, um, they are already bombarded with uh, fake apartheid walls and mock checkpoints and so on. And these, these kids are 18, 19, maybe 20 years old and they're being forced, as Gabe said, to be put in this untenable position now where they have to either hide their identity or renounce their identity just so that they can fit in.
0: So this, it's a last question, part A, part B, and one of you can answer one, one of you can answer the other, you guys decide. I guess to the general population who want to help, how do we make sure that they can get involved so that we have their kids back? Meaning, who should they be looking to, what organizations, what groups, what should they be doing to make sure that they can have their kids back? And then part two is, you know, you raise a very important point, which is educating the kids better. What's your message to the schools to all of these schools who do educate very well our kids but maybe need to do a different type of job now given what's happening when it comes to jewish identity pro israel um things of the you know think important things
2: like that and yeah, um, so i guess I'll take, I'll take i'll take the first part you know the everybody has today an obligation to do something about the rise of anti-Semitism and hate that we see all over really the world. I just came back from a global mayor's conference against anti-Semitism in Athens. This We tend in the U.S. to think that every, you know the world is U.S.-centric. It's not. On this issue, uh, there's anti-Semitism on the rise in meteoric levels in Europe, in South America, in the United States, in the Middle East. I mean, an- anywhere you look, you're seeing it. It's different in every place, but it's everywhere. And it's at a point because we're coming off of a time with Big economic unrest, a lot of political unrest and instability all over the world. And that's the those are ripe conditions for anti-Semitism to get to levels that we've seen before in the past, generation after generation, in different places in the world. And the only way we can do things differently in 2022, as we're going into 2023, is for everybody to stand up. So everybody has a toolbox around them, right? The toolbox around them is. is different. The tools that I have as a lawyer or as a former elected official are some. I grab those tools with my friend Arson and we filed this Title VI complaint. Or when I was a mayor, we passed certain resolutions and ordinances to try to push things. Everybody has those toolboxes, whether it's just influencing your family, understanding that Zionism is a part of Judaism. You can't separate those things. And if you want to live in a society that, that's welcoming and that you gives you the opportunity to, to raise your family and have a make a decent living you know you need you can't that's totally inconsistent with the society that allows anti-semitism to fester so it's an obligation everybody has if whether it's uh at, at their kitchen table at their work at their work table at the, at the water cooler at work um if they write they should write about it if they speak they should speak about it if they're involved in organizations of any kind doesn't matter which organization jason if it's If you're talking about uh, immigration, Israel and the Jewish people will come up today. And the question is, what are you going to do there? You're not going to stay quiet, even if you're not Jewish, because that's not the the society that you want to live in or you want to raise your kids in.
3: Um, Jason, I'll just add, you know, one of the reasons why we have taken such a passionate approach here is that if Berkeley is allowed to get away with this, if an institution of the size of Berkeley such an esteemed uh, educational, higher education institution, a public institution, if they are allowed to get away with this, where does it stop? Where does it stop? Um, will workplaces be allowed to say that we will not employ people of a certain ethnic background? Will other public institutions be allowed to get away with this kind of discrimination and bigotry and racism? That is one of the reasons, I think, why we have taken such a uh, force and such a passionate approach um, specifically with respect to UC Berkeley here. To touch also on really sort of uh, what you are um, on the second part of your, your question and I think the, the case study here is uh, setting a uh, strong precedent. We are not only calling on the revocation of this particular discriminatory and illegal bylaw but we're also calling for a number of additional steps and this is important because it's in reference to answering your question. But what else can the university do? So we're also calling them to make a clear and unequivocal statement that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. We're also calling on them to adopt the IHRA working definition of anti-Semitism, which UC Berkeley has not, uh, which doesn't come as a surprise. By the way, many other campuses, um, many other universities around America have, but UC Berkeley has not. Uh, We're also calling on the university to institute mandatory training for staff. And faculty on um, on racism and anti semitism, but with that definition and training specifically being grounded in the IHRA definition. And lastly, also um, we have um, called on the university to um, um, to institute, I suppose, a task force uh, with uh, with members of the Jewish community, and legal experts, and so on to talk about what steps can be taken in order to provide students. Faculty and staff, by the way, on campus, um, a safe environment, environment where they can freely exercise their rights as Jews.
2: And at the end of the day, Jason, we need to strengthen our Jewish community. We need to strengthen our students. We have to strengthen our children and our friends' childrens, and make them understand uh, that they, they, they do not need to check their identity, their religion uh, at the door. They need to walk proudly as Jews, and and we'll get through this this scourge just like we have in the past. It's, it's, we're in the middle of Hanukkah today so as, as we're recording this. So that's... that's Really, this the story of perseverance and fighting against those who were trying to take not just the, the the Greek Syrians that were were attacking the Jews and weren't trying to kill us; they were trying to take away our identity as Jews. And that's similar to what we're seeing here. And uh, and you know, we'll, we'll succeed, but we have to do it with strength, and we have to give the kids the strength to do it.
0: Totally yeah. agree. And I, I think we also need to fe- stop fighting among ourselves. But, uh, uh, Gabe, <laughs> yes. uh Gabe and Arsen. Thank, <laughs> thank you for um, taking. Thank on you, this. Thank you for taking on this fight, such an important fight, thanks for all you do, and thanks for joining me on The Diplomat. Pleasure, thank you. Well, there you have it folks, some really, really important lessons, lessons about anti-Semitism, about anti-Zionism, how they really are one and the same, the BDS movement, that hateful BDS movement that hates Jews, hates the state of Israel, the Jewish state of Israel, harms Palestinians, although we didn't get into that, that would be a whole podcast or multiple podcasts in and of itself. The terrible action by these clubs at Berkeley Law, the importance of the civil rights claim brought by Gabe Groisman and Arson Ostrovsky, two very talented attorneys. If you found it interesting, please do share it. Frankly, share it anyway. It's really important stuff. I'm Jason Greenblatt, this is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek, and please don't forget to pick up a copy of my book if you have not heard it yet. If you have not read it yet, it's available on both Audible, it's available wherever you buy your books. Listen to it. It ties very much into this issue and into the state of Israel, the Israeli Palestinian conflict, and today's Middle East. Again, I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.
3: This episode is brought to you in part by Purina. Purina is dedicated to creating richer lives for pets and the people who love them Your pet gives you the joy of the spring sunshine all year round. So today and every day, care for your pet with Purina. Your pet is Purina's passion. To learn more, head to Amazon.com backslash Purina.